Okay, um, let's get started. I guess we're a couple minutes late. Sorry about that. Um, so, sort of following from the last lecture, we're going to be, after talking about the actin filaments and the motor proteins that walk along the actin filaments, today we'll be talking about the microtubules. Um, it's sort of another track, if you will, um, for the cell. So the first part, we talked about, as I mentioned, actin, which consists of the microfilaments, uh, mostly the microfilaments. And today, we're just focusing on the microtubules, which are composed of the alpha-beta tubulin, um, and how they form microtubules, where kinesins and um, dynein walk along these microtubule tracks. We won't focus on the intermediate filaments today. Um, I think it's best left untouched for the time being. Um, so microtubules, what are they? Where can we find them? Um, they're found, found in a lot of cells that have microvilli. Um, <coughs> again, cells that have ciliated looking things on it, um, as well as uh, nerve cells or neurons. Uh, neurons especially use the microtubules to transport cargo from the cell body to their um, axonal or dendritic endings. As you can see here, the cell body is in the center of the cell. Um, but you need to transport proteins and other things all, all the way along an axon that could reach up to one meter in length. So it needs to do this in a highly um, proficient way. And what you do see um, are mainly microtubule tracks uh, along these um, axons in the neurons. And we'll, we'll touch on how they do it um, a couple slides down. But what are microtubules made of? Um, they're made of dimers of alpha and beta tubulin. Um, that alpha tubulin is bound to GTP, and the GTP does not get hydrolyzed. Um, it's sort of stuck in the interface between the alpha and beta tubulin. The beta tubulin um, also binds GTP, but has the ability to hydrolyze the GTP into GDP. Okay. And each microtubule is composed of 13 protofilaments, and each protofilament essentially um, is just a line of um, alpha and beta tubulin dimers, as seen here highlighted in yellow. Right? There is a minus and plus end, just like the actin filaments. And you'll see later on that the minus ends are essentially capped. And all the highly dynamic things that happen in the microtubules are occurring at the plus end of the microtubules. Okay. The dimers, the size of the dimers is about eight nanometers. Again, this will speak to the step size of the motor proteins that walk along these microtubules. So these microtubules are organized into different ring structures. Um, usually you have a singlet ring composed of um, 13 of them, um, 13 protofilaments that form a microtubule or an A-tubule as they call it. 
Uh, there are also different forms like the doublet and the triplet state. Um, but they all have the base of the 13 protofilaments. Right? And if you add another one on there, um, it's actually 10 protofilaments that are uh, added to the doublet. Okay? And some of these structures um, are seen in cilia, flagella, and um, the triplet states, you can see there, are found in basal bodies and centrioles. So I guess what cell types and where do we find them? Um, and what do they do? We don't, I don't really want to get into um, why the microtubules are in doublets, triplets, and the structure it is, partly because we don't know enough about it. Um, what we do know is that um, these structures uh, form microtubule organizing centers that will help, um, <coughs> help sort of assemble and nucleate um, the tubulin structures and help the microtubules grow. Okay. Um, and in a normal cell, it's a centrosome with two daughter centrioles, as we talked about earlier in the cell cycle lectures. Um, and we'll touch upon that again today. And it's the same for, say, a, a neuron, um, where the microtubule organizing center is close to the nucleus, um, and it mainly extends out of the axon and the dendrites as well. In dividing cells undergoing mitosis, you have the spindle bodies, right? You have these microtubules that radiate from the spindle poles. Um, some of the microtubules attach to the sister chromatids and separate the sister chromatids um, during anaphase. And we won't talk about the basal body um, and the primary cilia um, in some microorganisms as well as in some eukaryotic cells. But they're there to form, to help nucleate and sort of elongate the microtubules. Okay. Even though we think that you know, the cell is pretty static looking, um, if you actually look at the microtubules, they're very dynamic. And this is only a, maybe a one or two minute movie. Um, the cell itself isn't doing much. But you can see that the microtubules themselves are moving around a lot. They're not just static, they're not staying there. Um, they're sort of uh, extending and then retracting. <coughs> so the centrosomes, as I was saying, um, they're, they consist of two centrioles, a so-called mother centriole and a daughter centriole that are placed orthogonally to each other. Again, um, we don't know why that orientation exists, uh, but that's what we see. Okay? And around these centrioles, uh, there's a lot of dense material called pericentriolar material. There may be proteins and other things, uh, because that's where the centrioles um, are taking up and helping nucleation of the microtubules. So each centriole um, is composed of nine sets of triplet microtubules. So circled here in this green circle is a triplet. And there are nine of them. 
um, in the mother centriole as well as the daughter centriole. <laughs> and as you can see from these, this fluorescence image, um, the centrioles are in the middle of the cell, or towards the middle of the cell, and the microtubules sort of radiate out from that region. So they're really responsible um, for organizing the microtubules, if you will. So now you know sort of the structure of the microtubules, what they're composed of. They have a minus end, they have a plus end. How do you make them, how do you extend these microtubules? How do they shrink, right? So there has to be proteins that catalyze this reaction. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, at the minus end, nothing much happens. And it's because of these, this set of proteins called the gamma tubulin ring complex. Um, it binds to the minus end of the microtubule and essentially uh, caps it, right? Um, and the minus ends are pointing towards um, the centrioles themselves. So they're sort of regulating the dynamics of the cell. So once you have it capped, um, it allows for all the dynamic stuff to happen at the plus end of the microtubule. Okay. And again, there is a critical concentration of the tubulin dimers, a critical concentration, just like you saw in the actin filaments, right? Um, and since the minus end um, is, you know, is bound by this gamma turf C, um, most of the stuff that happens, we'll talk about, are at the plus end, um, where the, the tubulin divers are either added or they're depolymerized from the microtubule themselves. And from the movie I showed you, um, the, the microtubules are highly dynamic. They're unstable. Um, they'll form quickly, and they'll, they'll assemble quickly, and they'll disassemble quickly. And, this, and you see here, this is just a microtubule length um, over an hour and a half. You can see that the microtubules can quickly assemble. And then all of a sudden, um, it can disassemble. Okay? The process of, uh, and this process of quick disassembly is called catastrophe, or microtubule catastrophe. It's when the microtubule rapidly shrinks back and forth. They can also recover, and this process is called rescue. Right? So after quick disassembly, all of a sudden, the microtubules can grow in length quickly again, and this process again is called rescue. And this isn't just in vitro, right? Um, it's observed in, in vivo as well. So if you have, say, um, a fluorescently labeled uh, tubulin molecule, you can visualize in a live cell um, what happens at the microtubule, um, the microtubule dynamics in the cell. And as we saw, um, most of the, the minus end of the microtubule is sort of anchored and bound. Um, and, most, and what happens is really at the plus end, which is coming out of the cell towards the membrane, right, from the centrioles. 
And from here, you're just looking at different individual microtubules um, growing and then shrinking quickly again. So the basis for assembly and disassembly of the microtubules are very similar to what we saw in the actin filaments, right? Uh, but in this case, we can only focus on the plus end. We're only looking at um, beta tubulin, which can hydrolyze the GTP um, into GDP. So when, it's a, when the beta tubulin is in the GDP state, um, it's sort of depolymerizing, and it causes the microtubules at the ends to flay out as it disassembles. <coughs> and when it's bound to GTP, um, it can start adding in the tubulin dimers, assembling it into the existing microtubule and growing in length. Right? And it's these two basic processes that are responsible um, for the microtubule catastrophe uh, where there's rapid assembly and the rescue uh, of the microtubules. <coughs> so there, there are small molecules um, that, can, that we use to study microtubule dynamics. And it could be used to depolymerize um, the microtubules in, inside the cell. So we can study it in vivo. Um, not only are these small molecules useful for experiments, um, what we can use them for, um, it's also things like for um, cancer treatments, right? So if you, now you know about mitosis, cell division, and you know cancer cells are the ones that um, divide very quickly and have to undergo mitosis, um, and you know that during mitosis, you have these microtubules um, that form that are essential for sister chromatin um, segregation. So if you use a drug, say Taxol, that inhibits um, microtubule depolymerization, uh, you can target the cancer cells, if you will, just because they're dividing very quickly. So these small molecules can be used for clinical use. So, not, so now we know a bit about the proteins that bind to the ends of the microtubules, um, how they help assemble and disassemble the tubulin dimers onto the microtubules. There are other proteins that bind along the microtubule tracks that also help stabilize or destabilize them. Um, and some of these you might have heard of, they're called tau. Um, the different MAP proteins for microtubule-associated proteins. Um, and they act as spacers and stabilizers along the microtubules. And they're denoted here sort of as an L-shaped structure. Um, they help space the microtubules out, um, mainly because of, I guess, a potentially a large uh, steric hindrance between the microtubules. So in, uh, I think, so in the structure here, <laughs> excuse me. You can see that the microtubules are spaced fairly far apart because they have, uh, they're bound by MAP2. Whereas in another structure, you can see the microtubules are much closer to each other um, because it's 
bound by tau, right? So these proteins, tau and map, um, can act as spacers and stabilizers for the microtubules. <coughs> there are also proteins, again, that binds to the ends of the microtubules. Um, we call them the tip and end binding proteins. Um, tip meaning end track plus end tracking proteins. Um, and they, from this fluorescence micrograph here, you can see that each tubulin almost has, um, have these end binding proteins uh, at the plus end of the microtubule. And these tip and end binding proteins, uh, they enhance polymerization um, of the microtubules themselves. They recognize uh, the plus end of the microtubule. And we don't quite know how they catalyze it. Um, and it's still, again, work under progress. Um, but we do know it correlates very well when the microtubules are growing. So if you look at this, um, I guess it's a chymograph here. Uh, so this is a time course, and this is the length of the microtubule, if you will. So as the microtubule grows in length, the green shows um, the end binding protein and presumably the tip proteins as well. So only when they're bound by the tip and EB proteins that they grow in length. There's a short period where you might not see a lot of the EB proteins and um, they shorten, the microtubules shorten or they stall. Again, you require the proteins here at the tips in order to grow and then you go through um, a catastrophe where you can clearly see there's no green here suggesting there's no EB binding protein. Um, that's why the microtubules are shrinking. Okay? But once the proteins are bound to the plus end of the microtubules, you can see a recovery process again. Yeah? That's supposed to say catastrophe? The C? Yeah. The, uh, so, the, yeah, the catastrophe starts going down, right? Okay. okay. So that's just, so essentially if you think of it as each line, um, you can see that the microtubule length is shortened. Yep. Yeah, so all that is saying is that you know, these TIP and EB proteins, um, when they're bound to the plus end, um, they help the microtubules grow. And when, when they come off or when it's not bound, you can see the microtubules shrink. Okay. <coughs> and of course, things that help um, make the microtubules grow, there's always a flip side to things where you have other proteins that destabilize the microtubules, right, at the plus end. And some of these proteins are kinesin-13, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, it's one of the motor proteins. Um, and also staphmin, or oncoprotein-8. And literally, they just sort of bind and um, destabilize the plus end of the uh, alpha beta tubulin. <coughs> okay. So we have 
microtubules that grow, they, they get um, shortened. Um, but the microtubules, say, inside a neuron uh, are fairly stable. And of course, they're used uh, to transport, as I mentioned, um, organelles or proteins or vesicles or other things uh, to the very tips of the axon and the dendrites. And I'll just give you one case here. Um, we're looking at um, neurons in the spinal cord, if you will. These are the dorsal root ganglia neurons. Um, the dorsal root ganglia neurons are involved in many somatosensory processes, um, like you know, mechanical touch, temperatures, um, all the things that you can feel. Right. So the cell bodies. Um, of these neurons reside along the spinal cord. And, and you know, Descartes was really the first one who described them, um, suggesting that if you feel, say, heat here, intense, painful, hot temperatures, um, that there's a process that extends here from the foot all the way along the back and somehow gets processed in the brain. So this is an a new idea. It's just that we understand more about it um, because we know more about the physiology recently. Um, again, if you take a cross section of the spinal cord, you can see the actual spinal cord here. Um, and the, there are these cell bodies, these ganglia, uh, composed of multiple cell bodies that extend um, their processes into the spinal cord as well as all the way out of the spinal cord into, say, the periphery. Okay. And each of these um, neurons that make up the dorsal root ganglia um, innervate different portions of the body uh, that help us sense different things along our entire dermatome. Right? Okay. Um, <coughs> so, how do we know that things are you know, transported along these um, axonal processes, if you will? Um, there are some experiments where you could inject uh, radioactive amino acids, which are then made into proteins, right? And you can track uh, the proteins. Um, as they migrate along the uh, neuronal process over time. And you can see that um, you can, using different methods, you can actually trace uh, these proteins uh, as they progress towards the periphery, towards the tips of the axons, if you will, in this case. So it, it does happen. We can trace them. Um, if you look at them, so say this is a neuron, right? Things, proteins are synthesized in the ER, transported into the Golgi, um, and then sorted into vesicles, as you all know by now. Vesicles are then um, tethered to some motor protein, which we'll talk about, and they're going to walk down um, this axon along microtubule tracks. And if you look closely, you can see different organelles being transported along the microtubule tracks. 
Um, here, here's a microtubule, and here's some membrane-bound organelles that are on the microtubule itself. If, if you can see um, here at different time points, uh, indicated by each of these red rectangles, um, the blue and pink arrow show two organelles sort of um, going in different directions. Right? They're heading, one is heading in one direction, the other um, in the opposite direction. They're crossing paths and then going along the way, along a single microtubule track. So movement of these vesicles and organelles, again, can go in an um, anterograde or retrograde manner. Anterograde going away from the cell body, retrograde um, going towards the cell body from the periphery. And so here's a generalization. Um, there are always exceptions to the rule, as it might be. Um, but kinesins are the plus end motors, so they walk towards the plus end of the microtubule. And dynein are the minus end motors um, that walk towards the minus end of the protein, uh, of the microtubules. So let's start talking about kinesins. Um, The kinesins um, are a dimer of two heavy chains, um, and they associate with the light chain molecule. Right? If you just look at the protein structure, uh, there's several domains I want you to focus on, um, which are the head, which contains the ATPase, and that's really the motor part um, of the protein. There's a linker region, which you'll see will be important, um, and the stock region that helps sort of the dimerization. Um, and the ends of it will, the tail will attach to whatever organelle or vesicle, depending on uh, what it is. So there are different kinesins for different jobs, right? So. That's what we just talked about. Um, we have the head, pro, um, the head of the kinesin that will hydrolyze ATP into ADP. And this will catalyze or get the energy from the ATP and sort of will manifest as a movement or a conformational change in the protein that will allow the kinesin to walk um, along the microtubules. And it's really this linker region that is critical um, for the, this forward motility of And as I mentioned a little earlier, um, the tail binds to different receptors on different um, cargo. Uh, if you have a vesicle, uh, potentially the tail domain can interact um, with a kinesin receptor on this cargo. And that's how it gets tethered to its cargo. And it just, it takes the cargo and it continues to walk along the microtubule, transporting it towards the plus end. Um, what I've shown you is just one type of kinesin. Um, here in some uh, <coughs> uh, EM images, you can see kinesin 1, which has one um, motor domain or a head domain. Um, 
when you either label it with an antibody, you can see that the motor domain is uh, clearly, well, fairly well marked here. Um, but other kinesins, like kinesin 5, they have two motor uh, domains, right? So if you use an antibody uh, against the motor domain, you'll see sort of a dumbbell structure. So how does this affect the function of the kinesins? So you, you'll have something like kinesin 5, which is bipolar, and you have two heads. And we'll see later on that um, <coughs> In the microtubules during mitosis, um, when you have interdigitating microtubules, uh, the kinesin 5 will help sort of uh, guide and push the microtubules away from each other. Okay. We have also kinesin 1, which we talked about. Um, it's a single-headed uh, kinesin. It's mostly um, just a conventional dimer, whereas kinesin 2 is a heteromeric dimer uh, and the mostly involved in organelle transport. Um, and kinesin 13, again, we'll talk about in the context of um, chromatids segregation, where they're helping disassemble uh, the microtubules or depolymerize the microtubules. And as I mentioned before, we generalize um, so that it's easier to think about things. Kinesins are mainly the plus N motor proteins on the microtubules, but um, there is another kinesin, kinesin 14, that walks towards the minus end uh, of the microtubules. So how does it walk along the microtubules? Right? Um, so it has the two um, head domains, right? The head is right here, there's the two motor proteins. They bind to ATP, they hydrolyze it. Um, so what happens is that um, as, when it's bound to the microtubules, <coughs> an ATP um, binds to one of the, the leading um, head. Um, what happens is as it hydrolyzes the ATP, um, there's a conformational change in this linker region shown here in yellow. Okay? And this linker region swings over and docks um, in a pocket, if you will, in the leading head. Okay? And what this does, so this, as I mentioned before, this linker is critical for forward motility. Um, when this docking occurs, essentially it flings the lagging head um, all the way to the front. Okay? And I'll sort of go through this again here. Um, so this would be the next step. Um, so here's the linker, right? Here's the leading head. Uh, as it hydrolyzes ATP, um, this linker region rotates, gets docked in here. And by doing so, because it's also linked to the lagging head, it flings the lagging head over. And that correlates to a step size of 16 nanometers. So now, um, the new leading head is 16 nanometers away from where it starts, and um, the process starts all over again um, by re releasing a ADP, getting another ATP molecule, um, and at the same time, um, the lagging head now releases the 
uh, phosphate group and it's bound to ADP. Okay. And just to give you an idea, again, um, just to say they're in the ADP bound state, um, the leading head should release ADP, incorporate ATP in. Um, you can see the linker fling the other head over. It's going to happen again. ADP gets released, you incorporate ATP. Here's the linker, it flings the other head over, and it's walking in 16 nanometer steps, right? And it's sort of a neat thing, but um, if you look at the catalytic domain of both the myosins and the kinesins, um, seen in yellow here, you can sort of appreciate that they are fairly similar. Um, they're sort of beta strands, uh, which are these flat things. Um, surrounded by alpha helices in a specific orientation um, that helps hydrolyze, that, that forms the ATP binding pocket and hydrolyzes it and couples it to a conformational change that results in um, a motor protein activity. Right? And there's actually no amino acid conservation within, within these catalytic domains, but we think it's because of convergent evolution of the protein itself. Uh, the motor proteins um, that resulted in a similar structural fold. <coughs> okay, dynamic motors. So these are the motor proteins that walk, walk towards the minus end of the microtubules. Okay. So these are really large proteins. Um, I think they're about 500 kilodaltons, so in the protein world, that's huge. Um, you know, smaller proteins like transcription factors around 20, 30 kilodaltons. Um, most things do not reach this size. Uh, and because it's so big, it's very hard to study. So there's not much known or done about uh, the dynein. Um, what we do know is that it, it is a heavy chain molecule. Um, again, when you look at the protein structure, um, you can see there's a stalk, a head, and a stem domain, right? Um, and the head region, um, it's, it contains sort of uh, a hexamer, if you will, of um, ATPase. They call it the AAA or AAA ATPases, um, just because it's a fold that we know. It's AAA stands for ATPases associated with diverse cellular activities. Not that it's very informative, but I just don't like not knowing what these acronyms stand for. Okay, okay so, um, so that's, that essentially um, is, if you will, uh, the, the motor domain uh, of the diamond. And there will also be a linker region that we'll talk about. Um, and the, the linker region uh, will be associated with uh, different portions of um, the uh, AAA ATPase uh, as it hydrolyzes ATP. Okay. Um, the stem, um, 
again, it's sort of like the tail domain of the kinesis. Uh, it'll associate with the different cargos of uh, dynene and also dynactin, which is uh, a separate complex that helps dynene um, do its job. Okay. And finally, the stock, which contains the microtubule binding domain. So how does it work? If you look at single molecules, uh, a lot of them average them out. You can sort of get an idea of what uh, the dynamic structure looks like. And again, uh, this is before, uh, this is the so-called pre-stroke, um, and it should correlate to the cartoons on the right. <coughs> and this is after it's moved, right? Uh, after it's hydrolyzed to ATP and release the ADP in uh, inorganic phosphate. So normally, um, the linker region is associated with the repeats one and three on the ATPase. And once it hydrolyzes the ATP, um, it really brings the stem and the stock closer together, uh, resulting in sort of a movement towards the minus end of the microtubule. So dynein by itself, it's not very efficient. Um, it actually requires another protein complex called dynactin to both increase the processivity. Um, again, dynactin um, is also, I think, 11 to 13 subunit structure. Um, it binds to microtubules, um, and it also attaches to the dynein, right? So the idea here is that the dynactin uh, stably uh, helps the dynein associate with the microtubules at one end, while the dynein moves towards the minus end. It serves as an anchor point, if you will. So. Okay, so we'll talk a little about the diseases um, and mutations, things that regulate dining activity. Um, so list one, the gene product normally lengthens or regulates the, the power stroke of the dining, right? So it, it regulates how far it steps um, and how processive the dining motor is. And Again, it's this really large complex structure that we don't want to get into in this course. Um, but if you have a mutation in LIS1, and LIS stands for lysencephaly, um, for lysencephaly is um, essentially when the fissures of the brain become smooth. Um, so you, if you've ever seen um, sort of a anatomy of the brain, you have all these um, fissures and folds in the brain. Um, and if you have a mutation in LIS1, uh, all the folds disappear and you have a so-called smooth brain phenotype, right? So these patients um, have smooth brains and they have various uh, developmental abnormalities. Uh, we don't know how a simple protein like this that 
regulates uh, dynamed um, power stroke or activity uh, can cause such dramatic effects. Okay. So we'll go back. So it is pertinent to some disease. We'll go back and look at um, the microtubules and their motor proteins in a more cellular context where you're, much, you're very familiar with by now. Um, so here, this is the microtubule organizing center. Uh, it radiates out microtubules. The minus N is anchored here. The plus N extends out towards the cell membrane. You guys have... Um, you know more about, you know, translation, um, transport, and everything like that now. Proteins are transported in the ER. In this ER Golgi intermediate complex, it's brought back towards the minus end um, of the microtubule, towards the Golgi. Right? The Golgi then sorts everything and um, so it distributes the uh, vesicles around towards the plus ends. You can also see other organelles like mitochondria, uh, the powerhouses of the uh, cell. They can move in either direction. Um, we can also talk about the endosomes, the lysosomes, and the early endosomes that you talked about. Um, how uh, they can be used to recycle proteins if they're misfolded. So now you know which motor proteins are involved. You know that if things are transported from the ER to the Golgi, um, it's going towards the minus end of the microtubule, and it should be regulated by dynamics, right? And if there are secretory vesicles from the Golgi that are transported out to the cell surface, um, they're going towards the plus end of the microtubule, and it should be uh, moved out by things like kinesin. So you get a global context of what we're trying to uh, show you guys here. It's not just separate parts. Um, it is really a whole cell view of what's going on, but we have to break it down into parts um, so it's more digestible. And in terms of um, sister chromatid segregation and mitosis, um, we know, again, these are the spindle poles. Um, again, they have the centrioles in there. The microtubules radiate, radiate out um, from these poles. Okay. The plus ends are um, coming out. Uh, there are at least three different microtubule types. Um, the astromicrotubule anchor um, the spindle poles to the membrane. The polar microtubules are the ones that interdigitate, um, shown here, right? They, they cross over the midline, um, the, the zone of interdigitation, if you will. And of course, the kinetochore microtubules, which will attach the kinetochores of um, the sister chromatids and will eventually be used to help separate the sister chromatids. So there's a process where um, the sister chromatids have to align in the middle of the cell um, in this 
capture, congression, and movement of the proteins uh, of the sister chromatids are again mediated by uh, these polar microtubules um, that sort of push and pull um, the, the sister chromatids um, towards the middle. So you have the polar microtubules that interdigitate. Um, you have several different kinesins and dynines working in there. Uh, so kinesin 7, um, it's a bipolar uh, kinesin. One end attaches to the kinetochore, the other one attaches to the microtubule. And as the microtubule is growing, kinesin 7 uh, is stepping towards um, the plus end. That's the growing plus end and essentially pushing uh, the sister chromatid pair towards the midline. And at the same time, you have other kinesins and uh, dynein that are helping or pushing, helping this process along. Um, kinesin 13 in this case, um, it binds to kinetic cores and it binds to the microtubule uh, the tubulin dimers and actually uh, promotes depolymerization. So it shrinks uh, the microtubule on the other end. Um, and dynein is a minus end uh, motor. So one end is attached to the kinetic core, and as dynein um, walks towards the minus end, it's pulling the sister uh, chromatin um, in, uh, I guess, leftwards, rightwards for you guys. Um, and that's how these uh, sister chromatids are pushed and pulled towards the middle of, of the cell. Okay. So once the sister chromatids are aligned in the middle, um, you want to separate out the sister chromatids. And again, this process is regulated by the, the kinesins and dynein. Um, so we can start with kinesin 13. Um, again, uh, it, it's found at both ends, um, at the kinetochore end and at, um, towards the um, spindle pole end. Um, and as it depolymerizes the microtubule, it literally shrinks it and pulls the microtubule, uh, pulls the sister chromatin towards the spindle pole. Um, and for kinesin 5, um, again, it's a uh, two-headed motor protein, kinesin. Um, it's found uh, in these interdigitated polar microtubules. And as they walk towards the plus end, they're pushing the spindle poles away from each other. Okay. And the dynines um, that are in these astral microtubules um, Again, they pull the spindle poles towards the ends of the cell. Um, so everything is trying to push away, right? Um, they're attached to the sister chromatids. They're pushing the spindle poles and the sister chromatids away. So once that's done, once that's separated, you have cytokinesis and you get two daughter cells. <coughs> so the microtubules are, you know, they, they're the subunits, um, they're literally the highway tracks, if you will, for a lot of protein transport, vesicle transport, organelle transport, right? Um, but 
they can also get modified um, and used in different ways. Um, and the modification of um, the tubulin, uh, although we know it occurs, we don't exactly know what it does, um, at least in the functional terms. So for things like alpha tubulin, we know that the um, lysine can get acetylated. Um, there are different changes here. You can get um, D-type oscillation of the tubulins, which means the tyrosine amino acid can be gotten rid of. You can add in these um, glutamines and uh, glycines, right? And again, we, we're not exactly sure how the post-translational modification of these tubulins affect um, cellular function. Uh, what we do know is if we label some, say, D-tyrosylated um, microtubules, uh, they seem to localize to the leading edge of the cell. So shown here in red are um, all the microtubules. In green are the D-tyrosylated microtubules. So you can see a nice overlap uh, in yellow and the leading edges here. And you can see the D-tyrosylated microtubules are pushing towards the leading edge. So potentially, each individual post-translational modification on these tubulins can serve a specific process. Okay, so that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, microtubules and the motorbird. And we'll go into um, some of the things that could go wrong uh, that leads to uh, things like neurodegeneration or traumatic brain injury. Right? So, um, so we talked about neurons and how they have these long axons where the microtubule tracks along these axons um, that, are, that are important to transport uh, organelles, vesicles, and things like that. Um, but in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases or in traumatic brain injury, um, you can see these axons swell up, right? Oops. So shown here is an axonal swelling. Um, again, here, they can get quite large. Um, and they think that some of these axonal swellings are because um, transport of organelles, like mitochondria or vesicles, are impeding the passage, right? It's just piling up, it's like a traffic jam. Um, and it was proposed that perhaps it might have something to do with um, what we observe in these neurodegenerative diseases or traumatic brain injury. Um, so to, to test that, Instead of working on human brains, right, um, we can use a much simpler system, say the software or the fruit fly. If you look at some of these um, nerve fibers in the embryonic drosophila, um, this is actually a drosophila strain where the mitochondria are labeled. Um, and you can see some of these neurons uh, extend quite uh, really long axons. You can zoom into it, and you can see individual mitochondrial label that are presumably walking along microtubules in these um, axonal, axonal axons. 
But what we want to do is sort of to test out um, if these axonal swellings occur through pileup of um, these organelles. Um, and to do that, instead of trying to look at all the mitochondria at the same time, which can be difficult because there's so many of them to track, uh, what we can do is to use a process where you bleach the mitochondria, right? So the mitochondria are tagged with, say, GFP. You bleach them, although they're there, you can no longer see them. In the recovery phase, uh, you can see individual mitochondria uh, walking either in a retrograde manner or an antegrade manner, uh, presumably due to kinesins and diamonds. So here's just pointing out an anterograde uh, mitochondria walking towards the plus end, a retrograde um, mitochondria walking towards the minus end. And we can use mitochondria that are static, um, that, seems to be, that seem to be stalled um, as landmarks. So here's the same experiment um, we're just looking at at it in uh, real time. You can bleach it, and you can literally watch individual mitochondria walk along the axon uh, being transported. We can also quantify it. Um, we can show uh, that the rate at which the mitochondria uh, move in an anterograde and retrograde manner are similar, and the, the run lengths are how far they walk um, at any time, it's similar, okay? Um, I don't want to dwell on this too much. Um, so everything can work. Um, so that's just setting up the system to study this. Um, using some genetic tricks, uh, we can make these axons swell. Um, and here, we've artificially uh, generated uh, an axonal swelling due to congestion of the mitochondria or the organelles. Um, you can see there's a lot of mitochondria at this point. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's affecting um, transport right, across the swell swelling point. So it doesn't cause as big of a problem as we thought it would. Uh, normally, you think that the other mitochondria might stall here because there's a huge protein pileup, right? But they seem to walk right across it uh, with no problems. So we don't think that uh, it's really, we, we don't think it's causing problems with the transport, but the swelling of the axons um, have something else to do with the pathology uh, for the neurodegenerative diseases or um, with traumatic brain injury. So I'll end with that. Um, we're ending a little earlier today. Um, but next time, I guess, uh, Dr. Schwander will be talking about extracellular matrices and things like that um, that we touched upon. Um, so that's it. I will see you guys around campus. <laughs>